Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. No, it's not. Um, It's still us, Morgan and Jesse here. Hello, hello. Um, And today's theme for our podcast is working with the environment, small fish to big fish. Um, So we will be talking about the idea of being a small fish in a big pond or, you know, just starting out and having a large area around you to sort of work through. Um, And then later in your career, in your life, um, when you're a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Um, But we're not literally talking about fish, which could be confusing um, because we are an environmental, aquatic, um, ocean (laughs) ocean organization. But no, we're talking about the metaphorical big and small fish. So our guests today are Carla Giannicasio and Melissa Dan. Carla is a rising senior, so she's just kind of starting to enter the realm of environmental careers. And we sit down and talk to her what it's like and how to kind of start off and where, you know, your priorities lie and kind of, you know, how hard it is to, to pick what you want to do with the rest of your life. And then in the second half of our podcast, we will be sitting down with Melissa Dan, who has had many years of experience working in the environmental realm from just beginning as the Kyoto Protocol started to still working and running on some boards today. So, We'll, we'll hear about her non-linear path and how, you know, she, what advice she has for entering entering the working world of the environment. So. Absolutely. And one of the biggest themes in our podcast today is the idea of scale. So thinking about smaller organizations and, again, being a, a big fish there versus working at a sort of gargantuan organization and figuring out where your role is and how much of an impact you can make in each kind of, in each kind of environment. So without further ado, we'll hear from Carla now. Hi, everyone. This is Morgan. And this is Jesse, And we're here today with our guest, Carla. Carla, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Carla. Uh, Carla, where are you coming to us from? So I am an intern this summer for Hilton in the Corporate Responsibility Department. But I'm a senior at Tufts right now studying biology and environmental studies. And I'm kind of like um, focusing more on like the like broader sustainability um aspect of my environmental studies major because last summer I worked for like a nonprofit and I wanted to take the other side. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, so can you tell us, you um, said that you're a corporate responsibility intern at Hilton. Um, what does that entail? What is corporate responsibility in your words or in the words of sort of your job and um, what, does it, what does it mean to you? So corporate responsibility, like it is a weird term and it's like an emerging not emerging field, but in the past like 10, 15 years, more corporations have realized that people want to see a change and like the big companies that are basically running the world, like they want to see like, that a company that they invest in is like socially and environmentally responsible. And um, such a um, large company like in the tourism industry, such as the one I'm working for, is um, has a big role in the environment, has a bunch of like um, mm-hmm. waste issues and um like a lot of it's, there's a lot of energy usage involved with it, so um, it's like trying to mitigate those um, almost like things like you can't really change about a big corporation. Like you're trying to mitigate that with like social initiatives or like environmental initiatives, such as like removing plastics from the hotel um, like bar, like not having plastic straws, for example, or yeah. um, being involved in the community that these hotels are in, and like making sure that like um, are trying their best, honestly, to like incorporate like local vendors and um and not take away like like support the economies of the communities that these hotels are in. Um but is this is also like can be expanded to like 
any industry it doesn't have to be just hospitality. Like a bunch of like, food and beverage industries have a lot of issues with like plastic packaging and like doing right. like into their corporate responsibility department would probably focus more on like materials. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? But yeah. um, because of hospital, because I mean hospitality is really nice because there's a whole social aspect and get to work with people and like mm-hmm. we're trying to be like the most hospitable company in the world and that means being socially responsible in our communities. Yeah, that's great. Because like change, you know, is best from within. So it's great that they are hiring these people who like are their jobs are to make Hilton more sustainable and, you know, more environmentally friendly. That's exactly. Cool. Yeah, yeah, um, I really like it. That's super cool. Yeah, and kind of backtracking a little bit, how did you first get into the the world of the environment? And yeah, <laughs> that's a great question, Jess. Um, but um, so when I started going to school, I thought I wanted to be like a biologist, scientist, like in the lab coat, wearing her goggles. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. But then I started doing that, and I was like, this is not the coolest thing ever for me. <laughs> like, I was like, wait, there's so much more to science than just, like, molecules, which is what I'd always thought science was. I was like, yeah. like um, and being in, like, at a school, like, Tufts, just, like, Tufts opened my eyes to, like, how much more, like, I could be doing because my high school and, like, the town I came from wasn't the most environmentally conscious yeah. place. And then I went to Tufts, and there's always just, like, some bins and compost bins and this whole department of classes um, about the environment. And that's when I was like, wow, this is something I'm more interested in than, you know, organelles. So <laughs> I, I've changed um, a little bit of, like, um, my education path. Um, came to surprise my parents, um, but whatever. Um, I, like, and then I started getting all the like, clubs at school about how more to do with the environment. Um, and, like, um, and it's, like, want me to talk about ECRF? Yeah, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and then there's this particular club at Tufts called ECRF, which is actually a job, which is basically, like, um, student advocates for sustainability in the dorm rooms. So um, I felt like um, my ECRF, as when I was a freshman, like, inspired me to be them because that is, like, what opened my eyes to sustainability, and I wanted to open the eyes of other students at Tufts as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And sort of, like, being that advocate and making it cool and not embarrassing to spend extra time sorting your banana peels from yes. your cans, from your glass is like a whole big thing that now you're doing on a way larger scale, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And from, from dorm rooms to hotels all around the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So on that topic, um, what has it been like swapping sort of from, um, like, I think we've briefly mentioned it, that you used to work with Groundwork Somerville, which is definitely like grassrootsy, quite literally, organization where you're doing things outdoors and it's much smaller scale. Um, how has that transition been to a larger corporate responsibility role where it's like you're, you're, the decisions you make have implications all across the world because there's so many hotels and sort of speak a little bit to that transition. Right, of course. That's like, it's my favorite thing to talk about when I'm here. It's like when I worked at Groundwork Somerville and they call me the Carlos the Farm Girl. I'm like, I'm calling you guys new. Um, but basically, I'll like talk a little bit about what I did at Groundwork first um, for context, but... Um, I worked with like, a group of like um, kids from underserved communities in Somerville and like running the urban farm with them and like a career development but also like um, environmental workshop based summer program for them and it was like the most fulfilling thing ever because you got to see those little aha moments like in these kids' lives. They weren't kids, they're high school kids but like in my head they were like so special to me and like I hear so much about them so I'm still in touch with them today but like the organization is very focused on like food justice in the community and like um, um, fixing like the food desert issues in Somerville. 
<clears throat> and um, so, like, moving on from that, I felt like my I, like, loved my summer, but I was like, wow, my impact is really just, like, in Somerville, you know? There was so much I was learning at school that I was like, I can't just be working for one small city, although it's, like, my city was really nice to, like, branch out of a tough bubble and, like, be a part of the actual Somerville community that we're, like, all yeah. a part of. Um, I wanted to do more. Um, so I was left with that, like, oh, I wish, like, I, like it was, like, almost like a large organization. Um, so then, like, when this opportunity popped up um, to, like, work in my corporate social responsibility and environmental responsibility, I was like, wow, that's perfect because that's, like, the opposite. Um, it's, like, so I felt like a little, like what you said, grassroots side of the spectrum, but now it's, like, the corporate side of the spectrum. It's also interesting because at school, talking about corporations and the environment, it's never, like, a positive, um, like, lighthearted conversation, you know? Right. So, like, I was like, I want to see what, like, that's like instead of just, like, talking about it and learning about it. I want to see it from the inside. So the transition has been nice because, like, I always mention that, like, I started from, like, a nonprofit and, like, all these business terms, like, I don't understand. Like, I'm not a businesswoman, you know. Like, <laughs> I am a STEM person um, that I'm just, like, applying my STEM knowledge to the corporate um, world here. But it's really nice. I, it's, like, a it's a smaller team. It's a sub subset of the corporate affairs department um, in such a, in, in, at Hilton. Um, and, like, one of the most interesting parts to me was, like, seeing how such a big corporation, I've never seen, like, a company from the inside, I guess. <laughs> like, we all, like, are involved, like, buy into companies, like, every single day, like Amazon, Google, but, like, we don't really know how they work. At least I didn't. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, there's all these departments, and they're all, like, so interconnected, and, like, it was, it's very crazy. Um, but, like, my, my actual group, my team is around, like, 15 people, which is nice, so I still feel like a small like, community, like, teamwork approach, and everyone works together, because mm-hmm. um, we're all aligned on these, like, centralized, like, 2030 targets aligned with, like, the UN 2030 targets oh, um, nice. for sustainability, so it's really nice. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it was uh, so a similarity, I guess, between, like, the small, like, nonprofit sectors with the corporate world is, like, I think if a company is aligned with um, whatever the scale, with, like, the same centralized goals and everyone's on the same page about from the leadership to, like, the people at the way bottom, everyone's, like, aware, like, that makes it so much easier and streamlined yeah. to, like, reach those goals. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. If only we could sort of work on that outside of the corporate sphere and government the new yeah yeah see government that's what i'm trying to avoid because i feel like it's hard to be centralized yeah absolutely um but so carla i'm wondering a little bit about have you learned anything different about sustainability from the corporate lens like any ways that you're now conducting your own life differently just from seeing sort of like you said like you didn't really think about how hotels use a ton of plastic and now that you're in in it and understanding it um have you changed any of your habits in that way um, so I actually feel like kind of similar to that question. It's like I'm bringing these habits to the office. Like I bring my like um, utensils and my metal straw like every single day. Oh, yes. oh, how yes. cute! And I'm like, yeah, it's cute, but like it's important. Like yeah. like we have this like giant cafeteria where everyone eats, and it's like so much waste. And like I'm on the corporate responsibility team. Like I'm not gonna do that. You know what I mean? So like I feel like yeah. I'm like I'm doing probably like changes to office culture as I can. Like this like ten week program. You know, it's not like I can really change all the culture. But like for the people yeah. around me, at least like I try to. Like, bring the stuff that I learned like, at school and, like, a smaller, like, at Groundwork Summerville, it's stuff that, like, everyone brought their own utensils there, but, like, here, no one yeah. does. So I'm trying to, like, bridge that gap, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, also, like, geographically, it's different. You're in Virginia slash the D.C. area. Like, we, we're in a really, really environmental bubble in, mm-hmm. in Boston and Summerville. Yeah, I don't know what it's like there, but... 
Yeah, 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 it's different. Yeah, it's actually like the actual DC. I think it is different now, like because we're in Virginia, um, offices in Virginia, but in DC, there's plastic straws. Every, I mean, um, paper straws everywhere. Oh, okay. Um, like like every restaurant. And then I went home from Miami to Miami for my birthday, and like I was on the beach, and they were giving me plastic straws, and I was like, this is yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah. It was like yeah. striking. Yeah. yeah. What are some other like um, I guess striking differences between um, groundwork and Hilton uh, responsibility? It's because it's cool to go from so one end of the spectrum to the other, and I'm sure there's little things, but I don't know. It's just yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, there's like like it's a whole new world. Like just, yeah. I think the obvious answer is like the sheer scale of what I'm doing is like I'm not writing an article that like my like group is gonna read and maybe like the director of the nonprofit, you know, it's like what like mm-hmm. five thousand properties are going to read. So like there's yeah. also um I've also realized that like when it was um when I was working in like the nonprofit sector that like um you could like it was much more candid the way you could talk about things. You didn't really have to like watch the way you worded things, you know, because like yeah. it was almost mm-hmm. more like a I was felt like everyone was like friends, even though they were like your colleagues. But here, yeah. like, like it is like way more like corporate, and you have to like buy into that a little bit, and like make sure yeah. you're wording things the right way. And something I've noticed that like corporate responsibility, like we all are on the same page, like on our team, but like other departments might not like mm-hmm. view these goals as important as like we view these goals. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so like yeah. the way you have to work something without yeah. making sure you're not sounding like like talk about difficult topics such as like human trafficking or plastic use yeah. and like these, these thorny topics but like not rubbing people the wrong way right. um and like like make yeah okay and even the way you just worded that was incredibly diplomatic so it seems yeah. like you're you're learning how to carefully brief about important topics um yeah. but yeah on that topic is it interesting and do you think it's useful to have corporate responsibility and sustainability under a sort of social responsibility lens as you said it's part of it like or is it maybe in your opinion would it be better to have a social responsibility category and then a sustainability category of its own or how do you feel that those two interact so I think at least the way um, Hilton does it is they have the whole, like, it's called corporate responsibility, and that's divided into the social and environmental, mm-hmm. um, yeah. like, subsets, which I think, yeah. like, makes a lot of sense because they're so interconnected, like, environmental and social. I think, like, having two mm-hmm. completely separate um, departments or groups wouldn't really make sense because, like, stuff you do environmentally is going to affect the communities and, like, mm-hmm. social right. impact, like, has an environmental impact as well. You know, like, they're so interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like, different things you do fall into these little, like, buckets, I guess, but, like, it is all one big group. So that's why I think it makes more sense to call it corporate responsibility as opposed right. to corporate social responsibility because, like, mm-hmm. it's not just social. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so, Carla, after your experience, or, you know, so far during your experience in Hilton, has it changed where you think you might go after college? I know we all only have one year left, which is which is scary, and it's time to maybe figure out next step. Has it changed your thinking at all, or? Yeah. So, um, it's, I think it's been really nice for me to, like, see both opposite sides, you know, the, um, the nonprofit sector and the corporate side, um, but... And since I'm also graduating early, I literally have, like, one semester left to, like, oh, figure yeah. out what I'm supposed to do with my life, I guess. I about um, but what I'm hoping is, like, the following semester, I want to stay in Boston and maybe work for, like, a, like a smaller, like, not, like, a corporate, have a corporate internship, but, like, something smaller, like, in Boston, like, a Boston company to see, like, the middle ground, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Um, so that, like, a for-profit company, but that's, like, just, like, way smaller scale than, like, a Fortune 500 company um, yeah. and see what I think about that. But I do think that, like, I like the corporate responsibility side more so than, like, a nonprofit because, like, I feel like 
um, the same way I felt last summer. Like, I want to give so much, you know, and, like, the impact you can have in, like, a corporation is, like, much bigger than you can have in a nonprofit, uh, in, like, numbers-wise, not, like, fulfilling-wise, like, how many lives you're changing, you know what I mean? But, like, it just feels, like, like, personally to me, um, like, I'm doing more that way, but, like, there's no wrong answer, you know, like, it's different for every person, like, to work in, like, the nonprofit sector or, like, a middle ground, like, it's for whatever works for each and every person, but, like, I kind of want to, like, work for, like, something bigger, you know, but we'll see where I go. Probably not government, though, because that's just not for me. (laughs) But that's what's cool about, like, environmental careers and environmental jobs is that there's so much of them in so many different positions that have such different but all very important impacts on, like, the world and people. So, you know, it's either way, like, you're contributing something great, and that's amazing. And and almost overwhelming how many things there are to do, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And what you're grappling with is sort of the common, like, Mm -hmm. environmental person graduating and trying to decide, do I go, like, all the way corporate or all the way, you know, into a farm or both or one and the other? Exactly. Um, And I feel like there's no wrong answer as long as you have sustainability on the brain, which it sounds like you do with your metal straw and your wood. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. As small as that. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, and so with that, um, I think we're, yeah. I think that thank you we're, so much for taking the time to come talk about your experiences from farming to hotels. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great to have you on the show. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Thanks so much, Carla. Yeah. yeah, no problem. It's been so fun. Love your podcast. Listen to it every day. Hi <laughs> guys. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Okay, hello, hello, hello. We are here with Melissa Dan. Um, Melissa, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, not at all. So, <laughs> my name is Melissa Shackleton Dan, and I've worked in the environmental arena for about 30 years now. Um, I started at the World Wildlife Fund back, and this is really going to date me, uh, but when the Rio conference was just uh, getting going and uh, moved on to some small NGOs and to a uh, large effort by the U.S. government that was funded by USAID to focus on environmental issues in Asia, uh, and then uh, on to many years at a private foundation called the Wallace Global Fund that funded uh, environmental issues as well as other issues such as women's reproductive rights. Uh, and civil engagement. Um, fantastic. Well, that sounds like quite an environmental resume, even more than we thought. So that's exciting. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, that's amazing. So uh, we actually just had a, someone on the on the phone on this podcast who moved from a very small grassroots farmers organization to now working for corporate sustainability. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that you've had such a wide range of careers. You know. Um, and what are you currently doing this very moment? <laughs> uh, right now, I'm uh, actually, well, aside from sitting on some boards, um, I uh, just, in fact, uh, rotated off after six years of board service to Root Capital and nine years of board service to Winrock International. Um, but I'm still sitting on a, a nonprofit environmental publishing board called Island Press. Um, so I'm about to embark on uh, sort of a new chapter and working for a startup uh, called Spark uh, Fund, and essentially they're using a subscription model to try to catalyze uh, building managers to embrace uh, an overarching game plan for sustainability within their energy 
uh, practices. So whether it's uh, their systems of HVAC or, um, uh, you know, any other component of that you can imagine when you're sitting in an office building that, uh, you know, you typically have, um, I think a lot of people there who simply just want to make sure that the lights turn on uh, and that there's heat and cooling, but they don't, May, they may not be thinking about, well, what are the most efficient ways of procuring that energy? Mm-hmm. Right? So this startup is in the business of trying to provide that kind of advice and um, uh, implementation. So uh, anyway, that's going to be starting at some point soon. Yeah. But I'll still always have a hand in uh, the non-for-profit world. Yeah, that's so amazing. That's so interesting because, you know, one of the things people focus on a lot in terms of, you know, solar and renewable energy isn't the demand or the, or is the demand not the efficiency? Because if you can reduce, you know, what you use by half, then you can, you know, that's far more sustainable and better for the environment and obviously is important in the face of climate change. So what are some of the, um, some of the nonprofits you worked for, how are they adapting to and kind of uh, encouraging sustainable practices and also the face of climate change? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. Um, do you mean like within their um, actual infrastructure operationally or in terms of their, you know, broader programmatic objectives? Yeah, I was thinking more in terms of their mission, like in terms of their goals and um uh, you know, 10-year plans and stuff? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so I uh, first got involved with climate change, and I think this is maybe the way to go at this question, um, uh, just before the Kyoto um, Protocol, or just as mm-hmm. that was being negotiated. And so there were, at that point, just a few foundations that included the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, W. Alton Jones, I came in as well as Global and a a few others who um, really started putting money into that issue. And, um, you know, so at that time, you had a number of non-governmental organizations like the World Resources Institute or or Wildlife Fund or others who Mm -hmm. were taking baby steps um, because, you know, first it's a carrot, it's a really a chicken and egg issue. I mean, they need the funding uh, to pursue it. And, um, you know, in those early days, funding was really pretty scarce. Um, it's hard to imagine now, um, but, you know, for so many years, you just didn't have uh, a lot of big money coming in mm-hmm. um, to the set of, that set of issues. So from, from private investors or the government or just everything? There was no... Really everything. I mean, you know, you figure that, you know, for... Until recently, um, and there's obviously been a major movement on divestment, but Mm -hmm. um, until fairly recently, um, there was a lot of uh, suppression of science, of, um, uh, you know, certainly a lot of the corporate community, you know, didn't really want to acknowledge the issue. What's exciting now is that that there's been a sea change in that. We've got a ways to go, but you really do have so many private sector um, leaders. You've got um, non, you know, NGO leaders. You've got foundation leaders mm-hmm. uh, who are really committing. I mean, Rockefeller Foundation, for example, um, there are you know different branches of the Rockefeller, the Lamp 
philanthropic world, but the, um, the original Rockefeller Foundation hadn't really uh, gotten behind climate, and they've, they've just recently created a position um, on resilience and other dimensions to climate. So oh, wow. that could be something, and, you know, even the Ford Foundation hadn't really gotten involved. Now, it doesn't mean that they, um, you know, don't care or aren't smart about it or anything like that, but it just, it just suggests that, uh, you know, there are so many, uh, there are so many challenges that we're all facing, and part of it, how do you, how do you pick what, uh, you know, what you feel is going to make a difference? And for those of us who've been working on climate for so many years, uh, it's really felt that this is the 800-pound gorilla. You know, we don't really solve for this. You know, all of the work on endangered species and habitat conservation and other elements are just not going to really matter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that is one of the biggest uh, issues in terms of going into the environmental realm is what do you prioritize and what do you sacrifice to kind of be pragmatic? So, you know, mm-hmm, you can go mm-hmm. into energy demand, solar, or you can go into community resilience and adaptation in the face of climate change. So there's just so many issues, all of them important. It just, I guess, depends on where your priorities lie. But that's, you know, as as someone who's up and coming into the environmental career world, um, that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges most of us are grappling with. And it's well, what you kind of took a couple different trajectories that got you into the place you are today. Um, what was some of, one of your biggest learning experiences from that pathway? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, every day is a learning experience. I mean, honestly, it's like you uh, – I mean, I, I think the main thing is, is just to um, always – well, to have hope, um, you know, and, and, you know, when I look back, you know, 10 or 15 years ago and you think, oh, you know, there were so many discouraging moments, but there have been some real sea change moments as well. Um, but, you know, some of the bigger learning opportunities, I guess if I were to say to someone starting their career, if this would help, um, really embrace um, looking at different opportunities. Try out working for um, the nonprofits. If you can work in the t- private sector, do that too. I mean, we need so many people with different, uh, er- you know, different areas of expertise, um, and there isn't a single one of them that, uh, you know, is going to make a difference. It's really the, cult- you know, some of the parts essentially. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so now uh, I'm wondering a little bit about. Um, what your work is now in terms of um, what your role is as an environmental expert in Root Capital. Um, it's a really exciting project. As we've been reading about it a little in anticipation of speaking with you. Um, and so I'm wondering sort of what you bring to the table at Root Capital on the board in terms of an environmental lens and, um, and yeah, and sort of how your experiences in the past have informed your work today. Oh, sure. Um, well, when I first went on the board of Root Capital, and, and mind you, I just rolled off uh, this a couple months ago. So I, when I first started, um, they were just beginning their looking at agricultural issues with, through a climate lens. Um, and so I think they were interested in having me join the board because of have my, my experience um, on environmental issues. And um, that, 
uh, you know, has, and, and as the years went on, they got more and more engaged in looking at uh, adaptation. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of groups who are looking at mitigation. A group like Root Capital tends to look at adaptation because their work focuses on supporting grassroots enterprises um, and, you know, for primarily agricultural enterprises, which are often really at the front lines of experiencing uh, climate change, whether it's through, uh, you know, massive temperature shifts, disease vector shifts, right. um, storms, etc. You know, it's really these uh, smallholder farmers um, who are, you know, at the forefront of this. And 80% of root support actually is con concentrated in biodiversity hotspots. Mm -hmm. So they are very much interested in what they can bring to the table um, in terms of working with their clients. Great, yeah. So it's sort of a whole systems perspective to dealing with climate change and resiliency within communities of rural farming um, and all of that. That's, that's interesting. Right. 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 Um, well, that is so great to talk to you, and we have really learned a lot from your whole experience. It's great to have someone who, you know, has been in the environmental realm since Kyoto to be yeah. giving us baby environmentalists some great advice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have another question. Yeah. I have another minute. Um, so in terms of the political moment we're living in right now, how do you think that it makes sense for people um, – just coming up in the environmental world or people who are recently awakened to some of the, the devastating effects of climate change. Um, do you think that you have a recommendation about where best um, energy can be allocated in terms of, you know, working on lobbying or, because I know you held so many different positions that are some administrative, some dealing with more grassroots campaigns and such. Um, I'm wondering where you think energy should be focused right now in our current environmental and political moment. Mm. Well, that is a really big question. Um, Oh, you know, I think, um, you know, the more voices that are out there um, who, you know, are, who believe in climate change, you know, and who are articulating that, um, you know, the greater uh, demand there will be for solutions and for money coming into the issue. So, for example, um, you know, these days, I mean, it's not uncommon to hear uh, a weather reporter talking about the impacts of climate change. Um, well, that was thanks to years and years of effort from a number of non-governmental organizations and foundations to really um, create the space for that agenda. Wow. And for and and so, you know, I think for you know these days, it's you know looking for the uh, you know where the holes are, you know, where, you know, you know, um, you know, and, and how they can be filled. You don't, you know, we never, you know, I mean, for example, one, you know, one strategy for a while, and I don't think that we're there yet, has been to uh, look at uh, disease vectors um, and issues such as asthma um, that are so common in uh, so many parts of the world and affect a lot it, disproportionately, certainly in the Washington, D.C. area, disproportionately the um, people in um, uh, lesser funded areas. And so, you know, there 
you know, the links to climate change um, because of air quality are significant. And so, you know, I think if I were, you know, just sitting in your shoes, it really is trying to think strategically about what are the levers that you can help find and push um, to really keep um, making this issue um, as, you know, important as it is for the public. Yep. That's an interesting idea you brought about sort of the, the holes in which we need to insert in climate change. Um, and there's actually, there's just a study that um, what you said reminded me of from Yale University talking about how people speak less about climate change in normal conversation than they want to because every, like most American citizens assume that less people believe in climate change than they actually do. So even just speaking about it with your coworkers and your friends, you know, that's right. playing a role as well. Um, so that's a, that's a really great point. And interesting, I feel like our listeners should all spend a minute maybe thinking about where they can identify a hole in which climate change isn't being discussed and which the agenda mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. climate isn't, yeah, isn't being put forth and maybe try to do something about it. That's great yeah. advice. Um, so, yeah, with, with that, um, thank you so much for speaking to us and for being yeah. motivating and for talking about your extensive career with environmental issues. It's really a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so inspiring. Yes, and thank you for taking the time. You're very welcome. All right. Take care. Take care. All right. And we are back. I would like to thank our wonderful guests, Carla and Melissa, for taking the time to sit down and talk to us about environmental jobs and what issues and challenges and worries come with it. Um, So with that, we would like to say thank you. And for the end of our podcast today, we would just like to do a little environmental news roundup. So... This week, or last week, very recently, um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Bernie Sanders have introduced the resolution declaring climate change to be a national emergency. So they're urging um, the White House to recognize this as an issue that is present, that is happening right now, and to immediately make some changes to resolve it. So with that, we have put out a petition through Global Warming Problem Solvers um, that you can sign to help show your support for this cause and to urge Congress to, to act now. So, yeah. Um, and you can also speak to your representatives if climate change is an issue that's important to you. Um, you can call them or call, um, talk to your local uh, politicians of all varieties and tell them that you think that climate change is an emergency and um, encourage your members of Congress to vote to declare it a climate emergency. Um, and another piece of environmental news that we wanted to talk about, a little bit less encouraging, a little bit more troubling, but something to think about as the summer continues to heat up, um, is that a recent study published by the Union of Concerned Scientists used 18 climate models to predict changes in the heat um, index all across the country of America. And what they've learned is that we are going to start seeing in the next, by mid-century, um, way more 100-degree day, um, days um, in the summer and also just like a general trend of a ton more warming across the entire United States, um, which is something that's very frightening, obviously. So in, as you're enjoying your time at the beach, definitely think about why it is that it's way warmer than you remember from a few years ago, frankly, um, and think about the fact that regions of the United States that aren't typically so warm are going to be catching up to the, the hot northeast where we're living and to other places. and. Yeah. Yeah. Keep that in mind during this heat wave. I know D.C. is scheduled to be about 105 on Saturday. Yeah, so it's, it's crazy. And they cool out there. I mean, people make jokes about, you know, oh, it's nice weather. I'm not mad about climate change. But the, the fact of it is, it's really, it's, 
harming ecosystems, and it's something that we need to keep on our mind at all times. Um, so to end on an encouraging note, we'd like to thank all of the big and small fish that have been listening to this podcast. Um, Jesse and I, small fish entering the environmental workforce, are going to try to keep fighting these issues, and we encourage all of our listeners and constituents to do the same. So with that, thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org.